Today I would like to speak a little bit more about how to work with the instructions which we have shared with you uh, for Vipalasa, how to work you know, with them in order to you know, deconstruct those delusive patterns in the mind and you know, just let them go in our own pace. And then in the beginning, it's, you know, in the place of those very unwholesome patterns, we, you know, in the beginning, we replace them with wholesome ones, and then at the end, full realization is, you know, letting go of, of everything. And we are just like on the path, so we are still, you know, we need still to have the structure of the precepts and the refugees and all of the skillful means we have been speaking about. And they are like a stepping stone in the right direction. And then if we just keep on going, this is a very powerful process, which actually if we are having the right instructions, it takes care of itself. And uh, I would like to again start with a poem from this uh, collection of poems from the early nuns. And I'm today quoting Bikuni Nandutara, which means greatest joy. And she says, I spent most of my teenage years running from one bed to another. Any sign of warmth would do. Each worked for a while, until they got possessive or mean or boring or I did. Then I got new friends, shaved my head, and started eating once a day. During the long, lonely nights that followed, I would remember all the nice warm baths, all the late nights and long mornings, waking up next to beautiful warm bodies. One night, shivering on the ground, I started to cry. It's not fair. No matter what I do, the other thing always looks better. Listen, my heart. I know how exhausting it all gets. Don't give up until you are ready to give up for real. Yeah, that's what we are trying to speak about, you know, that giving up for real rather than falling into depression or, you know, kind of just into apathy or turning away from issues because they are difficult. So, you know, keep on facing into the direction of the challenges until we are ready to give up for real because insight has occurred and then letting go is effortless. Because letting go is not something we can do, but we can put you know the right causes and conditions in place and then letting go happens by itself. And that's really what we are, if you're after anything, that's what we try to orchestrate, you know, through using the different kinds of instructions, meditation instructions and you know, sharing the wisdom teachings, uh, taking the precepts, different level of precepts, and just, you know, working it from all sides. And then, you know, when the right causes or condition have been Created, bang, you know, it translates into a letting go. You know, step by step by step. And, you know, according to the Buddhist teaching, it all starts with 
generosity and ethics and then you know that's the easiest place to start with and then you know giving of oneself in terms of giving material things but also giving of one's own assumptions and views and then also you know keeping the precepts and giving the gift of fearlessness those two you know that's a good starting point they are not intellectually very challenging really you can just start there and then through that we are creating more space in our lives and then you know all of the other things they can come forth and it's like a, a, a flower blossoming you know no need to pull on the petals if there's all the right causes and conditions the flower will open the flower of the heart you know if, if there's any flower we want to compare it with you know in the Navajo tradition they are speaking of the jewel in the lotus is that the jewel of the insight into not self or emptiness that's what blossoms forth and then you know translate into greater and greater capacity for letting go and the process you know is sometimes very challenging and then sometimes also really elating and everything in between and what we need to take care of is to just stay grounded you know keep keep going not getting stuck you know in the fears not getting stuck in the hopes and just steering back to the middle and keep moving keep opening so it's not rocket science really but it can be emotionally very challenging because it goes against everything you know we have learned maybe you know in a culture which is dominated by a lot of ignorance and most of its leaders are extremely ignorant if not criminal so it's a really you know it's difficult to keep one's sanity in the midst of that crazy world but on the other hand you know it has become so crazy that it's actually so obvious now <laughs> it hasn't always been that obvious so that's a support we could say you know so don't give up until you are ready to give up for real and as i said yesterday you know the two main ingredients for that are number one wise friends sangha you know people we can exchange ourselves with and can get a measure of reassurance that we are going in the right direction and and the second one is uh according pali only so manasikara which is wise reflection wise attention and you know going back to the source because the word yoni means womb going back to the source where it all starts you know where the confusion maybe hasn't yet been there but then where we are starting and then from there on you know we are adding all kinds of stuff on top and uh, you know those four vipalasa the four ways of seeing things wrongly you have it on your paper and there is in the Pali canon there is a sutta which is called the, the Girimandana sutta also in the Anguttara Nikaya and it's a sutta you know which lists ten different meditation practices in order you know to support realization 
and the first four are geared towards counteracting those four vipalasa. And I just want to go through that a little bit with you. And uh, and then maybe afterwards we can just do an example and, and yeah. Okay, so let me start with, um, so the first one is seeing what is impermanent as permanent. And the um, antidote in the Girimandana Sutta is, you know, meditating on what's called the five khandas. I'm not sure if some of you have heard the five aggregates. Have you heard about that? A little bit? Yeah, I don't want to go into too much depth, but this is like, you know, in order to understand the process of the body and the mind, one of the templates the Buddha has presented in his teaching is called the five khandas or the five aggregates. And we can, you know, meditate on those and see that they are actually not things but processes. The body, feelings, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness, that are the five aggregates, and seeing that they are not solid things but processes. So that gives us an inroad into seeing impermanence. So that's the first antidote. So using the whole body and the whole mind and then looking at it in those five categories and seeing, hey, not a single one of those five is permanent. They are all constantly changing. So that's the first antidote. Then the second one is seeing what is painful as pleasant. And in the Gurimandana Sutta, the antidote for that one is seeing the danger in the body, seeing you know that the body holds old age, sickness and death. From the moment we are born, we are going every minute, every day, closer to our death, if we want it or not. And there's much pain and disease connected with that for most people. There are some exceptions, you know, but most people experiencing that. And, you know, every breath you take, you get you have one breath closer to your last breath. And it might first be like, whoa, I don't want to know all of this. This is kind of bad. But no, it's neither good nor bad. It's just what it is. And to familiarize ourselves with that truth, that's very empowering. Because, it, it, you know, through doing this, the mind becomes vaster and vaster. You know, first it's like that, and then it's maybe like Lake Tahoe, you know, because you have been facing the truth. And then, you know, if you're facing the truth squarely and not turn away, the mind has to stretch. And that's what we are doing, you know. We are just presenting that to the mind and then it just starts shaking and, you know, wanting to have something to drink or something to eat or just something, you know, do not have to face it. But then if you do face it, it the mind starts to expand. Just the same, you know, first you come to the gym and you can't lift, you know, anything. You start to lift a small one and then a bigger one and then, you know, five years later you thought you'd never imagine to be able to lift such big weights. Meditation is exactly the same. So, you know, seeing the danger in the body. And not, you know, in my particular body, but the animal body we all share as homo sapiens. 
you know, nobody is exempt from that fate and that nobody, you know, we can look after our bodies to a certain extent, but really we have very little control. So taking that in is very empowering. It's exactly the opposite than what the conditioned mind thinks. You know, facing the truth is empowering. First, it's like, you know, it might bring up a certain amount of despair, but then if we keep moving, it changes. You know, the same thing when you, I mean, when I learned writing, I remember I thought I could never, I can't, you know, everybody else can, but I can't. It looked completely impossible. But now I can. And with the meditation, it's the same. Okay, the next one is three, seeing what is without a self as a self. And the antidote to that is um, you know, meditating on the six senses and the sense objects and seeing their empty nature. For example, you know, seeing. We can see, you know, the eye is not like a single permanent entity, but it's a, a process, you know, which is coming together through, you know, if, if I don't eat and if I don't breathe, I'll die and there won't be, a, my eye won't function. So just seeing that the eye is a conditioned process and then, for example, the eye looking at the tree, the tree is a conditioned process and the act of seeing, you know, eye consciousness arising together with the object is also conditioned. So seeing neither the eye, nor the tree, nor the act of seeing is has a self, but it's, it's a conditioned process. And the six senses, you know, in the Buddhist teaching are eye, con eye consciousness, eye, the eye, ears, nose, tongue, touch, the body and the mind is also considered to be a sense. And the, what the, you know, the ears to the listening or hearing, nose smelling, and mind thinking. It's not superior you know, to all of the other senses. It's just one sense and it throws out a lot of thoughts. And a lot of them are actually pretty, you know, kind of useless or annoying but we can't just turn it off, like, even, you know, you can't turn off the smelling, I mean, you can do like this for some time, but then, you know, it keeps smelling again. And the mind is just one sense organ. So not to take it too serious, really. That's what the message is here. And the fourth one, seeing what is not beautiful as beautiful. And the antidote here is, you know, looking at the body for what it really is you know, looking at the anatomical parts of the body, just as, as, a, as a, in a, you know, in a manner of balancing, because we can get very much stuck on the sur <coughs> surface of certain bodies, you know, which are beautiful, or certain bodies which are, which we consider ugly, and everything in between, and this, you know, meditation of looking at the body parts <coughs> can help us to get a balance and seeing you know, what the body is 
what the body also is. Like a real, you know, they call it in the scriptures, they call it like a, a, a bag of skin filled with unattractive things, <laughs> you know. Which is kind of true, you know, if you cut it open and you look inside, it's pretty unattractive. But we need that stuff, you know, in order to live. So it, it's very, it has, it also displays the high intelligence of nature, you know, which we cannot really understand with our little thinking minds. But it's not particularly attractive, you know, looking at the stomach or looking at the liver and things like that. So sometimes, you know, if we're really obsessed with our own bodies or the bodies of others, we could just kind of check it out, you know, what do we really obsess here with? Is it the skin, you know, or is it the bones, or is it the flesh, or is it the hair of the head, or the hair of the body, or the teeth, or the nails, or the sweat, or the fat, and all of those things, 33 or 32 body parts. We have it in our chanting book. It's pretty, uh, you know, kind of cooling, you know, to do that kind of a chant. So, all right. So that's those four antidotes. And, you know, and, and how we can use them in our practice is to allow the vulnerability which comes up by, you know, doing those practices. It brings up a sense of vulnerability and allowing that to reverberate through the body and the mind and to decondition, you know, and that's why it's difficult because it, you know, it brings up manners of looking and manners of considering about the situation we are in, which we might have never done before, you know, so it's a bit, it can be edgy, it can be kind of, um, you know, scary even, so we have to take it, you know, how much we can take, don't bite off more than you can chew, but also be a little bit, you know, curious and um, courageous and try it out because maybe it's not as bad as you think. And, uh, you know, because that very vulnerability we all share is actually, it has been our big... Um, you know, advantage in terms of the evolutionary process because of that great capacity for adaptation and for, you know, empathy and for connection that has really helped us, you know, as homo sapiens to create, you know, really big civilizations. Many of them have gone down again because, you know, we didn't get it completely right. But we, had a, we have a great capacity for cooperation and you know, for for relationship building, because of that empathy and adaptability we all have, because of the vulnerability of our bodies, you know, that has been the basis where we needed to cooperate. Without cooperation, we couldn't have gone far. And that's you know, that's something to consider when we are doing these practices, because that we are really deeply moved by those practices. Actually, it helps us that we have a great capacity for sensitivity and for, you know, entering into things as they really are because that sensitivity, you know, compared with a crocodile or a turtle, you know, our sensitivity is much greater, but also what we can actually move 
and what we can accomplish is is also much greater because we have that sensitivity. We have this very sensitive bodies where it's difficult, you know, to go into your shell or to kind of, you know, attack somebody because we are not very strong. So not seeing that, you know, as a as a, not only seeing that as a negative feature, but also seeing the the positive capacity of all of that vulnerability we all have, you know. And then if we really cultivate the vulnerability in an intelligent way, it can become a great advantage. You know, and the Buddha's teaching is all about that, you know, wanting us to really use the mind we have got and the precarious situation of those very sensitive bodies we have use it for our advantage in terms of really seeing deeply the way things truly are, you know, cultivating our minds and our bodies. And, you know, in terms of the early Buddhist teachings that's expressed in what's called the seven factors of awakening. So the whole practice is all of what we have shared with you yesterday and also today is about cultivating those seven factors of awakening which we all have in seed form already in our minds and then through those different practices we hone them and make them more and more and more powerful. You know, clear out the excess baggage we don't really need and then focus the energy onto those seven factors of enlightenment which is mindfulness, investigation or curiosity, energy, Tranquility, energy, joy, tranquility, focusing or stability of mind and equanimity, equipoise or having a sense of perspective. So those seven qualities of the mind we are training, you know, with those different ways of looking at our own experience. And, uh, you know, in order to really make the most out of our practice, it is really important to, whatever practice we are doing, you know, to connect it with seeing impermanence. Because impermanence is the most uh, outstanding of the features, you know, which we need to... uh, really pay attention to in order for our minds to be changed. Because, you know, we are not, we can't willfully change our minds, but we have to direct our minds in a way so that they can see that which is difficult to see, which I said yesterday, you know, which is actually hidden in plain sight. Because impermanence is constantly displaying itself, you know, everywhere. But it's for our minds, it's it's difficult to pay attention to it if we are not training ourselves intentionally in that way. So, you know, training our minds to pay attention to particular features of experience we usually don't pay attention to if it's not pointed out. And uh, then, you know, the letting go is going to happen by itself. 
because I think Venem Tamadipa was also pointing that out, you know, for example, if you are, you know, learning as a child, if you're touching the hot plate on the stove, if you've done it one time, you're not going to do it again, most likely, if you have, a, you know, a relatively healthy mind. And that's what we try to support, you know, that process that the mind sees very clearly that which is attaching to doesn't lead to happiness, it leads to the opposite. And then, you know, letting go is, is pretty effortless. And I just want to speak a little bit about that process, you know, how that seeing of impermanence translates in letting go, because there is in the scriptures, you know, there's a classical sequence, which is often mentioned in the scriptures, and which makes a lot of sense. So, you know, paying attention, <coughs> paying attention to impermanence transforms our attitude because what happens is, according to the scriptures, is called disenchantment. Disenchantment sets in. But, you know, but just simply seeing impermanence in action very clearly, disenchantment sets in. And that's called in the Pali language nibida. And if we translate the word nibida literally, it means not finding. So if we are really fully paying attention to, we are never finding what we are looking for because we can't find a permanent resting place, you know, in this world, in this samsara, because there's constant change happening. And seeing that really clearly for the first time is, you know, seeing it fully is called stream entry in the Theravada teachings. But we can also have, you know, less deep insights, which can also be very powerful. And what is important is if we have seen impermanence more clearly than usual, you know, it's really good to remember that again and again. And that's the sign of an insight that we actually can record it. You know, when we say, oh my dear, you know, I never really got that. And then just making much of that, you know, and remembering it, reflecting on it. And then what happens through this disenchantment, the next step is called viraga or dispassion, uh, washing away of clinging. You know, the clinging just is like a, a stained piece of cloth. You know, if you're washing it once, the stain might still be in there, but if you're washing it 25 times or whatever, the stain gets lighter and lighter. And that's, you know, what the word viraga wants to communicate to us, the sense of, you know, seeing clearly and then that it translates into uh, letting go, dispassion. And then through that letting go and not anymore clinging so tightly, we have more capacity for actually seeing what's really happening. We can see not only the beginning of things, but we can also see the ending. That's the next stage. It's called neuroda, cessation. And for example, then, you know, somebody might have a new baby and it's really very sweet and you can rejoice and have, you know, sympathetic joy with the birth of the baby. But at the same time, you know, you know, going to be a tough ride from your baby, you know, and one day you're going to die, and it might be tomorrow. 
You know, and that doesn't mean that there is no joy, but the joy is a wise joy, you know, which is not like kind of being completely, you know, elated and losing, you know, losing your bearings, but it's a joy which is bittersweet, you know, and because of that, it's it's very precious. Because we know it's lovely, you know, babies, they bring so much joy into the world, but at the same time, you know, you never know what's going to happen next. And that's true too. And you know, to be able to hold both at the same time, that's wisdom. And it brings up a lot of compassion too, you know, seeing others who do not, who are not able to see both at the same time, who get totally carried away by sorrow and by joy. And then, you know, seeing the endings, in particular, you know, being able to tolerate the fact that we all will die one day, that's, that's the cutting edge, you know, of impermanence, really. And it does lead to letting go. You know, not, not only letting go of, of that which is dear to us, but also letting go of dukkha at the same time. You know, it's, it's, a, it's not just a bad deal, you know, that you have to renounce everything you like, but at the same time you get the benefit of letting go of the hardships as well. You still will have pain, you know, you still get old and you still will die, but it's not such a big deal anymore, not such a drama because we can see it, it's just part of nature. I'm part of nature, I'm nature. You know, and that, that whole sequence of contemplation actually is designed, you know, for us to understand that we are a process and seeing that more and more deeply and then this process, you know, which I call me or mine, is more and more, has more and more capacity to become part of a much bigger process you know, which we call nature or planet Earth or universe. And then, you know, coming from this understanding of seeing ourselves as part of nature, then the way how we relate to nature will also change. And that's, you know, what's it's very much needed in this day and age, you know, where we are going towards irreversible climate emergency. And then, you know, for me, for example, when I come in the door and I see the plastic bottles out there, I can, my whole body starts to kind of, ah, I'm not going to drink from that bottle, you know. And that's, you know, like the same when I, in the beginning when I practiced, I was still eating meat. And then after practicing for some time, at one point, I just couldn't eat it anymore. And it was not because I was particularly reflecting on vegetarianism or something but that everything comes together, you know, it's like a deep, a deeper and deeper understanding of seeing so clearly, you know, that we are part of nature, and if I drink this water and then I throw the bottle into the landfill, it's just crazy. So, this practice, you know, has very far-reaching effects, and there's nothing better, you know, we can do for ourselves in terms of our personal suffering and for the, you know, for all our fellow sentient beings 
big or small, they're not everything. So it's just the absolute super best investment, you know, we can make in this day and age where there's so much uncertainty. Yeah. So, you know, I really recommend it. And, you know, there's some suttas in, in the scriptures also which I like to mention in terms of closing, which I found very inspiring, you know. We don't have to force ourselves to let go because that won't work because letting go is the opposite of forcing. Letting go is the result of insight. And in the scriptures it's compared, you know, with a hen sitting on her eggs. If the hen is sitting properly on her eggs, which isn't like a super intellectual undertaking, you know, it can be, it is for sure that the chicks will hatch. And the same with the practice. And then there's another example, you know, in the Buddhist, in the scriptures is where the Buddha speaks about, you know, a carpenter using the, his ace for, for working on whatever he's doing. And then after a year, he looks at the handle of the ace and he can see it's a bit worn out, you know. And then three years later, he looks and it's worn out even more. And he doesn't exactly know, you know, when it was wearing out. But he knows something has changed. And the same, you know, about our practice. We don't have to constantly check, you know, have we already gotten more wisdom and compassion and how much, how many minutes and all of that stuff. But, you know, does it make a difference to the way how we live? Does it make a difference to the way how we relate to other people, to the planet, and to ourselves in particular, you know? Because if there is, if you can't witness a certain amount of change, then I don't know what you're doing in your practice. Then you might have to go and check it out with somebody who knows a little bit more than yourself. And uh, it's also important you not to have unreasonable expectations, but like seeing a steady, you know, progress, like the carpenter looking at his ace, you know, every year or so. That's enough. Maybe, you know, what's interesting also to share, maybe the word, you know, sapiens, homo sapiens. The word sapere, the Latin word sapere means to know, but it also means to taste. So that, you know, that gives a, I think that gives us an idea what it means to practice, you know, to really taste for ourselves. You know, like, for example, you don't know how honey tastes, you know, even many people might describe a lot of the features and qualities of honey, but you have to take a spoon of honey and then you know. And with the practice it's the same, you know, you have to really take it in. To just, you know, sit, you know, at the edge and not really, you know, going into the territory because it's scary, that won't do it. Because, you know, that the, the hardship and the challenges, you know, of the transformation they are needed in order for, you know, the ego and the conditioned 
ways of seeing to break down. Without the challenge, it's not going to happen. So there is nothing wrong, you know, with feeling at the ed- on the edge sometimes in the practice. It's needed. It's a part of it. And this is why, you know, the Sangha and wise friends are very important because sometimes it's difficult to, you know, to keep one's bearings in the process because it can be very, very, uh, can shake us up very deeply. And it's supposed to do that. Because otherwise, how would you ever change? It's like an earthquake sometimes. And then I'd just like to end my little reflection this morning with, uh, again, you know, reading out that quote which is often at the end of the suttas. Mentioned when in a particular person who has listened to the Buddha's teaching says at the end, magnificent Master Gautama, magnificent Master Gautama, the Dhamma has been made clear in many ways by Master Gautama as though he were turning upright what had been turned upside down, revealing what was hidden, showing the way to one who was lost or holding up a lamp in the dark for those with eyesight to see forms. And now we're going to sit a little bit together and just, you know, allowing the body and the mind to just be here and Allowing, you know, whatever you have, what has stood out for you in what I have been sharing. You know, if there's anything in particular, just allow that to really reverberate through the system. Disturb the system. just like, you know, the Dhamma is also compared with a medicine. And medicine can be quite bitter sometimes. You know, and feeling the there's a feeling of unease or a feeling of disbelief or a feeling of uncertainty. Just allowing that to be there with the in-breath and making place for that, making space for that. And then relaxing and letting go with the out-breath into the space which is limitless. There's all the space there. You have to just learn to also make that space internally available.
breathing in and maybe feeling a certain amount of tension and then breathing out and letting go into space. which doesn't end at the walls of this room. It's boundless space out there. And then becoming aware of the spaciousness of this room. And you're not listening to the silence in the room. The silence and the space. same time also being still aware of the body sitting and breathing. Then you're switching from paying attention to space and silence, switching from that to just being aware of that which knows silence and which knows the space. 
being aware of the knowing. So dropping the object and subject being aware of itself. Knowing that you are knowing. Just knowing as such, just knowing. And we're still aware that there's a sensation of body, maybe some sounds. Just taking the knowing itself Being the knowing. And also not dropping the I behind the knowing. Just knowing. No object and no subject. Knowing. Effortless knowing. like the sky and then objects might just move through it like clouds we don't have to grasp onto any of those just let them do their thing sounds touches smells whatever is thoughts they just move through like birds or clouds and the sky is the sky the knowing just is. You know, if the mind contracts again, because the mind is used to contract around objects, then as soon as you notice that, you just you know, gently let it go and come back. And even if you get lost in it, you just come back to the listening. You know, if we can experience the mind like this, this is a temporary liberation of the mind. Where the mind is not obsessed with any of the hindrances for you know, a minute or an hour or a day. Temporary liberation of the mind.
And if your mind snaps back into thinking, just try to drop the objects, thoughts, and just come back to listening to the space, to the silence. Just very literally listening. That which you can't really listen. It's not an attitude of mind. We have another 10 minutes or so to sit. 